Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast. This is week number 21. This week we'll start in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 with Hezekiah and finish through all of the book of Ezra. Now I know you're supposed to start a little bit in Nehemiah, but we're going to save that discussion for next week. So as we start out this week with Hezekiah, we find out in chapter 29 that he immediately began to reverse the damage done to the nation under the rule of Ahaz. And this was done in the very first month of his reign. Now, if we were to go back to 2 Kings 18, we find that all of Hezekiah's reforms were given only one verse. But here in Chronicles, three chapters are devoted to them. So to the chronicler, it was obviously important. Hezekiah wanted to rededicate the nation to God. That was his main goal. So he charged the Levites to get to work quickly on cleaning the temple. Then the king led the people in a great service of sacrifice of sin offerings for the nation and for the temple. Everything was done according to the pattern established by David for the temple. And so the priests were so overwhelmed with all the offerings that were coming in that they tasked the Levites with helping them. And it seems that Hezekiah was trying to get everything back in order before the time of the Passover. You see, because he wanted to be able to observe this feast and to do it properly. Now, as you move into chapter 30, you find out that in preparation for the Passover, Hezekiah extends an invitation to the northern kingdom. Any of them that wish to join the southern uh, kingdom, their Judean brothers, were encouraged to do so. The response to Hezekiah's appeal was rather saddening. The king's messengers were ridiculed and laughed at by most of the people. However, some people, specifically from the tribes of Asher, Dan, Manasseh, uh, excuse me, Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. You see, the problem that Hezekiah would run into is that many of these people from the northern kingdom did not have a chance to ritually cleanse themselves before the Passover. So they partook in a fashion that was not in accordance with the law. However, Hezekiah did something specific, the text tells us. He prayed to the Lord that God would overlook the letter of the law in this specific case and allow all who gathered to participate. The Lord looked with favor on the king's request, and the Passover went forward with great joy. And what's amazing is that God was blessing the people so much that they decided to extend the celebration for another seven days. The chronicler notes that there has not been such an occasion in Jerusalem like this day since the days of Solomon. Wow, that's saying a lot. This precedent-setting Passover paved the way for other forms of reformation in chapter 31. The high places and more remote areas were demolished, the priests and the Levites were reorganized, and the means of their support was put back in place. A system for collection of offerings was also devised. The principle in these reforms illustrate that when God's people obey His word, then they truly do prosper. Hezekiah prospered too because he sought God with all of his heart as David had done. Now, in chapter 32, we find out that 14 years into the reign of Hezekiah, came, he came face to face with his biggest challenge, and that was the Assyrian army under the rule of mighty king Sennacherib. Hezekiah quickly mobilized. He shut off water supplies. He strengthened his fortifications and raised a strong army. Now, understand that Hezekiah's preparations did not indicate his reliance on his own abilities rather than God. They were simply a wise defense. Like the old saying goes, pray to God and keep your powder dry. An Assyrian delegation, however, arrives on the scene first, trying to demoralize the Jews by recounting how powerless the other nations had been against Assyria. And so day after day, the propaganda from Assyria continues, even followed by letters from the enemy as well. The much longer account of Hezekiah's actions is in 2 Kings 18-20 through and Isaiah 36 and 37. But here, in Chronicles, the summary of events... There is a summary of events saying that both Hezekiah and Isaiah cry out to God for help. 
and the Lord answers their prayers, and a single angel is dispatched, devastating the Assyrian army in one quick stroke, forcing Sennacherib to retreat in shame. And towards the end of Hezekiah's days, he became ill, and even though the Lord healed him, he failed to respond with proper gratitude. But then later on, it seems he humbled himself. He was not a perfect king, but he was one of Judah's greatest reformers. Not since Solomon had there been a king who more consistently reflected the heart of David than Hezekiah did. Well, as you move into chapter 33, there's a dramatic reversal here. The text takes us from one of the best of Judah to one of the worst of Judah. The next king is Manasseh, and his wickedness put Judah on an irreversible path to captivity. In chapter 33, Manasseh begins to reverse everything good that his father had done. He reintroduced idolatry to Judah, going so far as to practice human sacrifices and to place images within the temple itself. One author says this about Manasseh, If Manasseh had searched the scriptures for practices that would most anger the Lord and then intentionally committed them, he could have not achieved that result any more efficiently than Manasseh did. The Lord would allow the Assyrians to enter Jerusalem and take Manasseh as prisoner. The account of Manasseh in 2 Kings does not say anything about this, but the chronicler described it as the king's salvation of sorts. On his return from exile, Manasseh undertook massive construction projects and began to remove pagan worship centers, replacing them with the true worship of the Lord. The chronicler definitely emphasizes the king's repentance rather than his rebellious acts. He magnified the grace of God rather than the rebellious ways of the king. And if we are honest, we all want the grace of God to be magnified in our lives over our rebellious ways too. Now the last few verses of chapter 33 talk about the next king, Ammon. He was an evil king like his father, but he did not repent of his evil ways like his father had done. After only a reign of two years, he was killed by assassins. Then Josiah was installed to rule over Judah. And chapters 34 and 35 are about Josiah's rule, another reformer of Judah like Hezekiah. He was only eight years old when he begins to rule, ruling for a total of 31 years. And it was a time of refreshing and spiritual awakening, but it was not enough to stay the tide that had been caused by Manasseh. In Josiah's reforms, the book of the law was discovered in the temple. Now, it might be hard for us to understand how the people could have lost the law of Moses and how they could have forgotten it in just two generations. However, written copies were scarce, and parents and the Levites conducted most instruction orally. Only one generation separated the people from ignorance of God's will. And isn't that true today? Isn't that the same throughout history? After the discovery, Josiah led the people in a great ceremony of covenant renewal based on the newly discovered scroll. Then, like Hezekiah before him, he authorized the observance of the Passover, which seems to be kept for many years during his reign. This first Passover seems to be noted by the chronicler as the greatest one in Israel's history since Samuel, even better than Hezekiah's observance. The last few chapters of, a few verses rather, of chapter 35 tell us of Josiah's untimely death. Josiah put himself in the way of an Assyrian-Egyptian alliance against the new superpower Babylon, and he lost his life as a result. The text tells us that quite clearly that Pharaoh's word to the king to turn back was from the Lord, but Josiah does not listen. He was disobedient, and he dies in the valley of Megiddo. Josiah is one more king who began well, but ended up doing something wrong at the end. All right, on to the last chapter in Second Chronicles. Chapter 36 covers the reign of Jehoaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiachin. Josiah's death leaves the land unstable, and so the people of the land took charge, placing Jehoaz, Josiah's youngest son, on the throne. But Egypt steps in and replaced him with his older brother, Jehoiakim, 
who reigns for a total of 11 years. And midway through his reign, Jehoiakim becomes a vassal state under the control of Babylon. And although Jehoiakim is disloyal to his new overlord, he is permitted to remain in power until his death. After he dies, Jehoiachin is placed on the throne, but his reign only lasted for, for three months, ending with his captivity in Babylon. He remained under house arrest of sorts in Babylon for nearly 38 years. He was later released when Nebuchadnezzar's successor took over Babylon after his death. Now, the last king of Judah was Zedekiah, perhaps the worst of Josiah's sons. We find that he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, and for his rebellion, he paid not only with his own life, but also with the lives of many Israelites. The Babylonians sent one final wave of destruction towards Jerusalem, robbing and destroying both the city and the temple, carrying off any people who remained alive. Now, verse 20 of chapter 36 tells us that the kingdom of Judah remained in captivity until the time of the decree of Cyrus. That decree happened 70 years later and the Jewish exiles start to return back to the land. So, Second Chronicles ends with a message of hope. The people are returning to their land to rebuild their city, their temple, and their lives. Life in the exile, however, is detailed in the books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. But because the Bible is not arranged chronologically, those books will show up later. For now, the time period of the exile is skipped over, and the next book is Ezra. And Ezra is the one who would begin to lead the people back to the land. Just like there were several waves of deportations to Babylon from Israel, in Ezra and Nehemiah, there will be several waves of returns to the land of Israel. Now, as we get into the book of Ezra, here are a few things to keep in mind when reading Ezra. First, Ezra concerns rebuilding the temple. That is one of the main events detailed in this book. Second, the book of Ezra covers a period of 80 years. So that's quite a bit of time. Third, while the southern kingdom of Judah was the one returning from the exile in Babylon, there were significant numbers of people who were originally from the northern tribes that were living in the south. So now it becomes an issue of not the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, but what tribe you are from. Fourth, this book is a book of hope. Even though Israel has made a mess of things, there is still hope. And can I just say that even when we make a mess of things, there's still hope for us. So we get to chapters 1 and 2 of Ezra, and these chapters detail the return from exile in Babylon. Because of Israel's sin, they were punished to the fullest extent of what God would allow, exile in Babylon. Chapter 1 tells us that God had kept his promise, and after 70 years of exile, like the prophet Jeremiah had predicted, the people could return to their land. The king issued the decree, but this event of the decree to return to the land was actually prophesied almost a hundred years earlier in the book of Isaiah. In fact, what's amazing is that Isaiah named the man who had issued the decree as Cyrus some a hundred years prior. And guess what? Verse 1 tells us of Ezra chapter 1 that it's Cyrus who issues the decree. Now, if you don't believe me, look for yourself in Isaiah 44 verse 28 and Isaiah 45 verse 1. Isaiah will tell you that it was Cyrus. Now, many of the Jewish people picked up their belongings, and under the leadership of a man named Shizbazar, they returned to the land. Now, one note here, Shizbazar and Zerubbabel are actually the same person. Shizbazar is this man's Babylonian name, and Zerubbabel is his Hebrew or his Jewish name. No, if you've read the book of Daniel, you'll understand this. Daniel and his three friends have Babylonian names as well as their Hebrew 
Jewish birth names. Remember, we know Daniel and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their Babylonian names. Their real names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so there's just a difference of the use of names, same person. You also find Zerubbabel's name in 1 Chronicles 3 in all that genealogy that we read through. He is from the line of Jeconiah, a royal family. So he is the heir apparent to the throne of Judah and as such leads the people back to the land and starts the process of repairing the temple. As we come to chapter 2, we find a list of families rather than individuals and the towns in Babylon from which they came. Almost all of these people could demonstrate their Jewish ancestry. The list is subdivided into categories like the men of the people of Israel in verses 3 to 35, the priests in verses 36 to 39, the Levites there in verses 40 to 42, the temple servants even in verse 58. There's also a miscellaneous group from various parts of the Jewish dispersion who could not document their ancestral affiliations, verses 59 to 63. But altogether, just under 50,000 people returned to Jerusalem in this first wave. Now, you might not have caught this at first, but the number of servants to the number of people in verse 64 is a 1 to 6 ratio. Every sixth person owned a servant. And let me just say that you had to be a wealthy person to own a servant. Combine this with the offerings listed in verse 69. And to me, this is a list of very wealthy people who had done well in Babylon and who are coming back to Israel. Now, this listing of people serves a purpose, as one author notes, that this list actually illustrates God's faithfulness in five distinct ways. First, he provided legitimate leadership in the form of Zerubbabel. Second, he preserved Israel as a covenant people. Third, he returned Israel to its inheritance, their promised land. Fourth, he entered into fellowship with his people as they rebuilt the temple. And fifth, he gave them the necessary resources to return, all the materials to rebuild things. And we could even add to these five things, a sixth one, that God is faithful to his word. Because God said they were going to return, and God always keeps his promises. Now, in chapter 3, the first order of business is to restore the altar of burnt offering. The text tells us that in the seventh month, sacrifices were being offered on this rebuilt offer. Now, the seventh month, autumn time for us Western people, was when the Jewish people celebrated three of their annual feasts. The Feast of Trumpets on the first day of the month, the Day of Atonement on the tenth day of the month, and the Feast of Tabernacles starting on the fifteenth of the month. Seven months later, we're told, the man and materials for rebuilding the entire temple had been gathered and the rebuilding process commenced. When the foundations of the temple were laid and finished, the people erupted in praise. But of course, there are always those pessimistic people. In this case, the older crowd, having seen the first temple, complained about it compared to Solomon's temple. Now, any good work for God can expect opposition, and that's exactly what happens in chapter 4. After the fall of the northern kingdom, those ten tribes, remember as they went to Assyria, the Jewish people of those tribes were dispersed and many were carted off to Assyria. However, at the same time, we're told that the Assyrian government encouraged its current residents to immigrate to the land of Israel and intermarry and set up life there. That policy started with a man named Eshardon there in verse 2. I think I said that name right. But those immigrants worshipped other gods and in time they added the Yahweh, or the God of Israel, to their list of gods that they worship. These people's descendants became known as the Samaritans. Now, it's this group of people, the Samaritans, that wished to help the Jews with their rebuilding process. But Zerubbabel 
and Yeshua here, the high priest, refused their help because they did not worship the one true God exclusively. And to this, the Samaritans begin to cause trouble with the Jews, preventing them from continuing the building process. Now, when Ezra discusses the problems of building the temple in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, it reminds him of a later similar trouble that he had with the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And so he includes chapter 4, verses 6 through 23 as almost a parenthetical citation before the narrative re-continues in chapter 4, verse 24. It would be like talking with someone about a matter and then providing evidence of that topic by means of an example. And then you return to the topic at hand. That's what happens here. This means that because of the enemies causing disruptions here, the temple foundations lay in ruin for 16 years. So did you get that? So the foundations of the temple are laid, and for 16 years, because of these disruptions, it just stays there, foundations and all. And the people likely walk by it every day. Now, chapter 5 tells us that the ministries of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, yes, the same ones that wrote the books of Haggai and Zechariah, had encouraged Zerubbabel and Yeshua to move forward with the temple project. However, more opposition comes in the form of the Persian provincial governor. He decided to draft a letter to Darius to see if the temple building process had been authorized, citing that these Jews had said that Cyrus had issued a decree. Well, he didn't know about this, and so this governor, Tatani, told the king Darius that they needed to search the royal records for such a decree. Well, guess what happens? A search is made for the documents in chapter 6, and the document is found. In a palace in the province of Media, a scroll was found. Chapter 6 actually lists the memo to provide historical accuracy. Cyrus had indeed approved the rebuilding process, and on the basis of this precedent established by his predecessor nearly 20 years earlier, Darius, he had no recourse but to comply, and he immediately sends a letter back to Jerusalem informing the governor that he needed to comply as well. Now with this behind them, the Jews pressed on until the temple was finished in the sixth year of Darius, which was 516 B.C., This was exactly 70 years after the destruction of the Temple of Solomon in 586 during the exile. So here the number 70 shows up again. 70 years in exile seemed to have taken on a double meaning. Israel was exiled from the temple and and proper worship for 70 years, as well as they were exiled from their land, from their inheritance for a period of 70 years in Babylon. Now, after reorganizing the priests and the Levites by courses and assignments, the leaders observed the Passover on a massive scale. Chapter 7 introduces us to the man named Ezra. Almost 60 years had elapsed since the completion of the temple. So that means that, if you're counting here, between chapters 6 and 7, there is a period of nearly 60 years. Ezra's genealogy is briefly summarized here at the beginning of chapter 7. The genealogy is not complete by any stretch. It's abbreviated at times. It was designed to show Ezra's qualifications as the spiritual leader of the people. The king grants Ezra permission to return to his homeland, and the king's letter shows how highly esteemed Ezra was. Ezra would essentially hold a position in the Persian court as Secretary of State for Jewish Affairs. As you move into chapter 8, chapter 8 tells us that a group that returned with Ezra would be a second wave of returnees from Babylon, a total of almost 1,500 returned. Now, at verse 15 in chapter 8, Ezra realizes that this returning group, he didn't have any Levites. Therefore, he sent a messenger to a place called Kasaphia. Ezra knew that Levites were 
needed for proper temple worship and proper temple functions. And once the Levites were found, they agreed to be added to his entourage. And then Ezra led the whole group in a session of prayer and fasting that the Lord would grant them safety and success for their journey ahead. By the way, a note of history, verse 21 of chapter 8, this was the text that John Robinson preached from before the pilgrims sailed for the new world in 1620. We're coming up on that 400th year anniversary even this year. Now, this entourage arrives in Judah. Ezra takes precautions to ensure that the temple utensils arrive safely and be used properly in the temple. Now, you get into chapters 9 and 10 of Ezra, and Ezra wastes no time in addressing the main spiritual issues that had arisen since the people had arrived in the land, from the first wave until the present time. And the main issue that he addressed was the problem of intermarriage of the Jews with their pagan neighbors. This was one of the covenant stipulations that God's people needed to follow, lest they be drawn away to worship other gods. That evening, after finding out about the problem of mixed marriages, Ezra offered up a public prayer of deep confession. He did this at the time of sacrifice, so many would be there to hear the prayer. He prayed for unity among the Jews, a readiness to change their ways, confession, and faith in God's mercy. This is one of the great prayers God recorded in the Old Testament. It illustrates how a faithful individual should respond to the sins of the people among whom he or she lives. And while Ezra is praying this prayer, those hearing it begin to weep. Chapter 10 tells us that the people readily confessed their wrongdoing, and within three days, all were who affected, all who were affected by the sins came to the temple to hear what they must do about their wrongdoing. Ezra didn't pull any punches. He got straight to the point. They must dissolve these marriages. The people agreed, but requested time in which to carry out the verdict. Ten days later, the process was set in place, and within two months, the entire verdict had been accomplished. In all, there were 110 men who had taken foreign wives, 17 priests, 10 Levites, and 83 general Israelite citizens. Correction of a community problem must start with the leaders. Even the sons of Yeshua, a a chief priestly leader among the people, were guilty. Now, the whole matter of Ezra's actions is a matter of debate. And we could take the easy way out and say, well, this was an issue of marriage related to the Mosaic law. And today we are not subject to that law, so we don't have to think about this. Now, that kind of thinking does not consider the larger issue, namely that marriage was ordained long before the Mosaic covenant came along. Now, there is much to consider here and no time left on my clock to do it. So let me try to highlight just a few things. First, let's be careful to understand the historical context. The issue was not the marriage of the Israelites. The issue was the potential of what marriage to foreign wives could do or would do. Marriage to foreign wives had potential to draw a man's heart away from the God of Israel to the gods that that foreign wife served. Now, you might be thinking, like I do, of an exception to this rule, and that will be the example of Ruth, who was a Moabitess, who married Boaz. And this foreign marriage, even more so, is in the line of Christ. But in Ruth's case, she abandoned her foreign practices and her foreign gods and put her faith in the one true God of Israel and serves him alone. In the case in Ezra here, in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, in these mixed marriages, there is no indication of abandonment to other gods to serve the one true God. In fact, Nehemiah, in Nehemiah, there's another example of this that we'll talk about when we get there. The heart of the issue here is the heart. It was all about commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, second, there is a dilemma 
between the sixth commandment and the first commandment. Which is more important? Don't commit adultery or have no other gods before me. To do nothing was to continue to break the first commandment. To divorce unbelieving foreign wives was to break the sixth commandment. So there's a dilemma here. Third, Ezra knew that marriage was instituted by God and considered a permanent and exclusive relationship. Even God himself uses marriage to illustrate his own relationship to his people. I'm reminded of the book of Hosea and the teachings of Paul and Ephesians. Fourth, perhaps Ezra's actions were extreme ones for an extreme case. If these huge numbers of unbiblical marriages had been tolerated, it could have spelled out the end of this post-exilic Jewish community as the people through whom God would eventually bring redemption to the world, the Messiah. Fifth, this episode also shows the wisdom of Ezra's leadership. As vital as his leadership was, he did not force his decision on the people. Rather, he influenced the leaders, and the people to rely on the power of God's Word and God's Spirit. And the decision was made by the community of believers. We can learn from his teaching, his patience, and his example. Sixth, these chapters in Ezra, however, are descriptive, not prescriptive. They cannot be taken as an authorization for divorcing an unbelieving spouse. We have to remember that. Okay, I could give you some more but I think I've given you enough to chew on for this week. Now, we were supposed to get into the few chapters of Nehemiah, but our time is gone, and we're not going to be able to do that today, so we'll save the full discussion for Nehemiah for next week. Now, remember, if you have any questions, email them to bibleading at lmbc.org, and I will talk with you all next week.